John chapter 19. Here's what the Word of God has to say to us today. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and set and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written. What I have written, I have written. Understanding the events that precede the resurrection in in one sense seem rather simple. We have Jesus and uh, the Jews, the religious leaders don't like Jesus. They want to silence Jesus. They're trying to use all of the the political intrigue of the day to have Jesus crucified. And in some way, it looks like Jesus is a um, an unwilling and mistreated participant in this whole event as he's moving toward the cross. But I, but I think sometimes the events that precede the cross are not necessarily as simple as they seem on the surface. Jesus is going to the cross. 
And it seems he's going to the cross as a result of unfair treatment and false accusations. But I want you to know he's not going to the cross without intention. And he's not going to the cross against his will. Jesus is ridiculed as a false king. And so both the religious, uh, the religious leaders, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even Pilate are, and those who are mistreating Jesus, are presenting him as one who claimed to be king, but who was not, in fact, king. He's presented as a false king in an attempt to, to demonstrate his weakness and his powerlessness. But even in these moments of suffering and mistreatment, his kingdom is unshaken, And his authority as king of all kings is not at all threatened. Death on the cross was intended to be humiliating and shameful. It was an instrument of Rome to suppress and to oppress those whom they had conquered. But on the cross, Jesus confronts the guilt and shame of our sin. And he doesn't only confront it, he overcomes it with his own blood. In chapter 19, John tells us, not only the rid- of the ridicule of Jesus, but the total rejection of those who should have received him. But instead of responding with anger, Jesus graciously, lovingly moves intentionally toward the cross. So this morning I want to speak about King, the King Jesus and the kingdom of God. And I want to divide our time in these ways. Number one, Jesus is a king and the king with all authority. I want us to talk about the authority of Jesus on display in this moment. Secondly, that this kingdom of God demands allegiance. Today, you and I must decide. There, there's no neutral decision here. You must decide, will you bow the knee to Jesus or will you bow the knee to the kingdoms of this world? You're bowing to some king. Make sure you're bowing to the right king. And then lastly, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of man. This is not about governments and presidents and parliaments. This is about God establishing his kingdom forever and ever for the glory of his name. But let's begin with a a, a king with authority. Now I want you to look in verse 11 with me. So the religious leaders are crying for his crucifixion. Pilate is desperately trying to find a way out. Now don't miss, and we don't have time for all the the intricacies here, but there's a lot of politics going on here. And you've got the religious leaders who desperately want Jesus crucified. You've got Pilate who's trying to manage a a, a powder keg that at any moment could erupt into uh, political discord, and he doesn't want that. And, and, and so he's trying to keep an oppressed people oppressed and sort of uh, at least an external sense of peace going on. And this is a pretty dicey moment for him as well. And he sees no guilt, and he's trying his desperate uh, effort to, to, to release Jesus and to, to quell the, the intensity of the moment. But look with me in verse 11. In verse 10 it says, So Pilate said to him, uh, will you not speak to me? So he, he had he'd called Jesus back in after they would not, would not relent. The religious leaders would not relent. And they had said uh, that he claimed to be king. And so, uh, and so, so Pilate asked him uh, in verse 8. So when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus would not answer him. I, I think a little bit incensed. Pilate at this moment in this place was the, was the most powerful political uh, figure there. He says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So in other words, Pilate's saying, I'm the guy who on my word and on my authority, you either live or die. Don't you think at this moment you would have something to say? Now, I, I imagine that, that most of us, 
If we were in a moment like that, we'd start pleading for our lives. You'd give your resume, you'd talk about how sweet your mama was and how much she liked you at this moment, right? Jesus says nothing. And Pilate, I think a little incensed, maybe a little confused, says, are you not going to talk to me? Do you not know who I am? Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Here's the point, friends. All authority, every last ounce of authority, whether it's political, physical, or any other way, all authority is from the Lord. The word that Jesus uses here in verse 11 means either authority or power. And the point that he's making is that Pilate has no power and he has no authority over Jesus except for that which God has allowed him to have. Now, in, in, in my family, my children are, my youngest is just about at that point where I'm going to have to quit wrestling with him. I was telling Joshua the other day, the only reason why I'm still able to win is just because I've got you beat in weight. But things are about to change here in the next few years, and I'm going to have to graciously say, you know, it's not appropriate for us to wrestle anymore. When my children were little, we've always enjoyed getting on the floor and wrestling, and if you had come over to my home when they were real little, you would have witnessed uh, a wrestling match where generally the kids won right? We would wrestle and they'd get on top and, they, and, and I, would, I, would, I would feign that I couldn't move and that they had won and they would stand up believing that they had beat dad and that they were the strongest ever. Now, if you were in my home at that moment and you were sitting on the couch watching this thing go down, you probably would not have been fooled by that. You would have recognized that in that moment that my children had not actually, were not actually stronger than me. I hope that's what you would believe. And, and you would not have thought that their, their masterful wrestling technique had not taken down their dad. What you would have recognized is that a father who enjoyed um, interacting with his children had withheld his uh, power, had withheld his strength for the blessing and for the encouragement and for the enjoyment of my children. Many of you have done the same thing. Now, in those moments, it's not that I have lost my strength. In those moments, it's not that I was weak or couldn't, but I willfully withheld what I could have done for the benefit of someone else. When we see Jesus moving toward the cross, when we see Jesus quiet before Pilate, when we see Jesus not um, uh, defending himself, for that matter, you understand Jesus has not, withheld, has not surrendered any bit of his authority. He could have called down the fires of heaven at this moment to rescue himself, but he willfully, intentionally is withholding his authority and power. He has all authority is from the Lord. And Jesus has all authority, and he's recognizing here, speaking to Pilate, brother, you've got whatever authority you've got, you've got it because God gave it to you, not because of anything else. Because, of our, perception, because our perception is limited by what we can see and know, we often see the powers of this world and fear them more than the power of God. When governments systematically per persecute those who believe, we're tempted to fear the government's. When public opinion is against truth, we're tempted to fear public opinion. When, when the economic forces war against those who would live out their faith, we, we fear our economic stability. When those with power flaunt their arrogant rejection of the gospel, we oftentimes fear their ability. 
But friends, listen, these things have no more power than Pilate did. For the will and the purpose of the Lord, God allows the powers of this world to exercise their strength. But listen to me carefully. That exercise of strength is only a temporary exercise. The Lord gives all authority, and it will one day be returned to the Lord. In this moment, Jesus is not weak. In this moment, Jesus is not powerless. All authority rests with him. He is willfully, intentionally moving toward the cross. You see, Jesus submitted himself to the will and the authority, not of Pilate, but of God the Father. He submitted his will to the Father, not to the powers of man. And I think this is a critical distinction to make. Jesus doesn't approach the cross. Um, Jesus does approach the cross like a sheep to, to the slaughter. So we, we may remember Isaiah chapter 53 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. But I want you to understand there's a distinction here we need to make. He is, he is going to the cross like a sheep under slaughter, but he is not a sheep under the authority of the powers of the world. He is a willing servant submitting to the authority of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, willfully submitting himself to the will of the Father. He is not compelled by the, the authority of the world, but he is compelled by his love for us and the authority and the power of God. See that in this moment. This is not forces acting upon Jesus. This is the will of God acting upon our sin. Friends, no power of hell will prevail over the power of God. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. How can followers of Christ have peace in a world that hated Jesus? Even crying for his crucifixion in a world that today hates us who follow Jesus? Our peace comes from knowing who is really in control. Now maybe your days recently have been great and grass is green, your bank account's full and all your kids are behaving and your marriage is great and there's no problems in your life you can think of. Praise God for that. But it may be that there's some things in your life right now that are frightening you. There may be some things in your life that you cannot control. There may be some things in your life that are scaring you and I want you to hear a good word today there is no power of hell no power or authority in this world that will prevail over the authority of God there is nothing we deal with or face that is not under the authority and submitted to the authority and the will of God Jesus said to his troubled disciples in John chapter 14, Peace I leave to you, with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world finds temporary peace in its own power. But friends, we have eternal peace in the eternal authority and sovereignty of God. From the Old Testament to the New, that's been the testimony. Psalm 47, the word said, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. In Psalm 130, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Romans 8 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then Job 19 for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Friends, there is peace in the presence 
of the power of God. He is, Jesus is our king with all authority. Now, I want you to see something else out of this passage, and that is that this king, Jesus, establishes a kingdom that demands allegiance. So look with me in verse 15. Again, back up one verse. In verse 14, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. All oh, the ironies here, friends. They were preparing to celebrate the day that Jesus set the Israelites free from Egypt with a lamb. The blood of the lamb. Do you remember that? That was slaughtered and the blood was wiped on the doorpost. And through that, God set the slavery of the, uh, Israel uh, free from the slavery of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And now they are preparing not for the Passover, but the real Passover lamb, Jesus, that would separate us and free us from the slavery of sin. Verse 14, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, that is, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. This is a low moment. In verse 15, they cried out. The Jews cried out. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Friends, rejecting Jesus is not a neutral choice. To reject Jesus is to work against the will of God. The religious leaders were attempting to silence the witness of Jesus. And so they tried to silence Jesus by a couple of things. During his ministry, they, they asked him questions and they attempted to find something that they could, they could accuse him of and, 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 and reject him and maybe get the people to turn against Jesus. They tried to discredit him by accusing him of blasphemy and now they're trying the ultimate to have him crucified. Many wanted to believe that they were not against God, they were just not for Jesus. In other words, we're, we're not against God, we're not against the work of God, we just don't like Jesus. Friends, either Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world, or he's just another historical figure that should be dismissed to the pages of Scripture. Now, if he's just a historical figure, first of all, we ought to be doing something else right now. Read a history book, take some notes, and move on. But if he is the Son of God, then it demands our attention and it demands our response. Rejecting Jesus is not a neutral choice. The chief priest chose their enemy over their Messiah. That's not a neutral choice. You see, to reject Jesus is, by definition, to embrace the world. The religious leaders wanted to retain their religious status, assuming that they were right with God, while rejecting Jesus all at the same time. And in their attempt to get Jesus condemned to death, they pronounce their allegiance to Rome. Now, again, we don't have time for all the intricacies of politics here, but just imagine with me that a foreign country had, had, had taken over the United States of America. And right now, who was, who was, who was governor of Georgia was, a, was a, um, a, a representative of that foreign nation. And who was, who was local um, uh, 
politicians were installed by that foreign nation and they were enacting rules and laws that we hated they were forcing us to do things we did not want to do and we absolutely were 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 warring against that in every way we could what in the world would you love what in the world would you hate so much that you would be willing to bow the knee and profess your allegiance to a foreign nation who has occupied us rather than see that person go free that's what's happening here they hate jesus so much that they're willing to say, oh, no, 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 Jesus isn't our king. Caesar is our king. That should be bitter on their tongues, and yet they say it with passion. Friends, either you will serve the world or you will serve the Lord, but you cannot do both. Either you'll bow the knee to Caesar or you'll bow the knee to Jesus, but you cannot do both. One leads to salvation The other leads to more slavery. These men who had spent their whole lives working in the temple now were embracing Rome as their ruler. They would rather have the rule of Rome than the rule of God. Friends, the rule of Rome meant slavery, occupation. The rule of God meant salvation. What you will find is that when you are ruled by the world, it'll cost you much more than you thought. It'll be more burdensome than you could ever imagine because serving the world always cost you more than you had planned. Israel hoped to be free from Rome's occupation and again be ruled by a rightful descendant of David on his throne. God had promised David that his household would be established forever. Israel was waiting and and banking on that promise of God to be fulfilled. Jesus is the prophesied, promised king. He is from the house of David. He would establish the kingdom of God and rule forever. All the promises of God are being fulfilled in this moment. And yet, they would rather have Caesar as their king than bow before Jesus. Their rejection would cost them dearly. Jews pledged their allegiance to their enemy. and They would say with their own mouths, we have no king but Caesar. They should have been saying, we have no king but Jesus. And rejecting Jesus and embracing the world, it would cost them much more than they ever bargained. Oh, they got to keep for a while their status, their their place in the temple, their political power. But they forfeited eternity with God. Friends, there's no salvation outside of Jesus. There was no salvation in the temple alone. There's no salvation in the law alone. There's no salvation in good works. There's no salvation in the judgment of men. Salvation is only in Jesus. Friends, the kingdom of God demands, it demands allegiance. One last thing. This kingdom that we're talking about, it's not a kingdom of man. It's a kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 14, and then we're going to skip to the very end. So in verse 14, Pilate presents Jesus to them and he says, Behold your king. Now, skip with me again back to verses 19. Jesus is on the cross. And Pilate writes an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he had it written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The point of that was so that everybody walking by, no matter where they were from, would know what it said. Verse 21, it says, So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. They didn't want to be associated with Jesus. 
But rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. They were offended. They didn't want to be associated with Jesus. They didn't want to be connected with him. And so as Jesus is dying on the cross, they're arguing about semantics. Don't tell everybody he's our king. Tell everybody that he said he was our king, but, but he's really not. And Pilate said, I've written what I've written. A couple of things about this. The cross, my friends, is offensive to sinners. The cross confronts our sin. You and I are accustomed to seeing the cross as a thing of, of beauty. We hang it in our churches. We wear it as jewelry around our necks and on our rings. And because we see it so often, we don't think much about it. But it's important to remember the cross is an instrument of execution. It's like decorating our, our buildings with electric chairs and hanging nooses. It's an ugly thing in its original form. The cross confronts our sin in that it reminds us that we deserved rightly to die. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then three chapters later it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The cross testifies to our need for atonement. Our sin is not written off. Our sin is not forgotten. Our sin is not ignored. Our sin is confronted on the cross. God provided atonement for our sin through the perfect sacrificial offering of Jesus on the cross. Now to the converted, the cross is, a, is beautiful because it reminds us of our sin and the grace of God to forgive us of our sins. But to the world, it is offensive. Reminding them of, of their sin and their inability to overcome their sin on the cross. It's why the religious leaders didn't want to have anything to do with the cross. It's offensive. We don't want to be connected to that. We don't want to have any association with that. The cross is offensive to sinners. Friends, the cross is offensive to our pride. Friends, there's not a soul in this room who can save yourself. The cross reminds us that we cannot save ourselves or anybody else. We are totally dependent on the work of Christ for salvation. We're totally dependent on the blood of Jesus for our salvation. That's why the song says, what can make us white as snow? And the answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. No amount of good works, no amount of sacrifices, no amount of offerings can, can, can ever atone for our sins. No political position, no church position. None of those things matter when atoning for our sin. We are saved only by the blood of Jesus. A believer's pride is broken before the cross so that you might, hum, be, might humbly and joyfully receive the mercy of God. The cross offends our pride, offends the pride of one who believes that they can be righteous through their own works. The religious leaders didn't want a king like Jesus. They wanted a king like Caesar. But if you're to be saved, dear friends, you must bow before the king, Jesus. The cross is a reminder of our shame, but is also a testimony of God's love. Here's where it gets a little personal. 
because we have rejected Jesus too. I don't want us to be too harsh on the religious leaders because every one of us in this room too have, re have rejected Jesus and worked to silence the testimony. I don't want to be too harsh on these religious leaders because we too once were enemies of God. We too once embraced the world and by embracing the world rejected King Jesus. We have rebelled against God. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all have rebelled against God. The rebellion of the religious leaders was not the first, and it won't be the last. Their rebellion is a common trait amongst all humanity. We have all rejected the will of God and tried to make ourselves king. Anyone in here who's not bowed before Jesus as king has essentially said, I'll be king of my life. I'll rule my life. I can be king. We have ridiculed Jesus. Now the crowd spit on him. The soldiers beat him. But we too have chosen the things that God hates over what God loves. And in so doing, we have ridiculed King Jesus. We, many of us, have treated the gospel as a take-it-or-leave-it truth. And in so doing, we have rejected Jesus and ridiculed Jesus. We have chased after the approval of the world rather than obeying God. And when we did, we ridiculed Jesus. Now, the truth is, there's a whole lot of shame in our sin. But the overwhelming, glorious truth that counters that is, there's even greater grace in the cross. It is ugly. It is shameful. It is confrontational to look on the cross, but don't turn away. Now the shame and the guilt comes from the reality of our sin. But the reason why we don't turn away is because on the cross, as Jesus willfully went there, it is a demonstration of the great grace of God and his great love for us. The Bible says that God loved us while we were sinners while we still rejected him, while we still ridiculed him. Jesus died on the cross that sinners, that rejectors, that ridiculers might be saved and be with him in glory. That's the great love demonstrated on the cross. All sin is wicked. All sin is shameful. Before we came to Waycross, we lived in Cook County, Adel, and the, the local judges there had a creative way of dealing with shoplifters. If you had gotten arrested and, and convicted, I think it was for habitual shoplifters, one of the punishments that they would do is they had this really big sign, and I mean big, four feet by four feet. And it had this large text on it that says, I am a thief. And for habitual shoplifters, one of the one of the consequences that the judges would, would give is they would make these folks sit. And I guess they didn't have a job, and so they would have time. And so for eight hours a day, from the morning until the evening, they had to sit in front of the store on the street, the store they had stolen from, and hold up this sign, I am a thief. I think it even had their name on it. Now that's embarrassing, isn't it? Can you imagine if somebody you knew, or worse, somebody you were related to, had to sit out there with a the big sign. And there was a temptation when you would ride by there to look at those signs, to shake your head in disgust, 
and, and, and to recognize their shame and guilt. But even when you, and, and pass judgment on them. How, how dare they? What, what a shameful thing to have to do that. And the truth is, and I think this is a, a positive thing. I want you to know this. I, I don't struggle with shoplifting, amen? I've not been tempted that way. And I, I suspect that most of you in this room either and so as I would drive by that those persons sitting with that sign there would be a part of me that would judge what a terrible thing they did and that judgment was sort of bolstered by the thing that the, the thought that I, I don't struggle with that sin I wasn't really afraid of ever being arrested for and convicted of and having to stand out there um, with a sign in my hand saying I am a thief pride, I was confident that I would never be guilty of their crimes. And it is true that I'm not a shoplifter and I've not been tempted to such sin, but listen to me carefully. Being guiltless of one particular sin does not excuse all the other sin in my life. And I'm just going to tell you, I think I'd rather hold up a sign that says I'm a thief and hold up other signs that would be more accurate about my life. My sin that demanded the sacrifice of the Lamb of God is just as wicked, just as shameful, just as costly as the shoplifters who stood on the street corner proclaiming their guilt. And my sin required the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross just as much as their sin. Listen to me carefully here. To the one who rejects Jesus, the cross remains ugly and shameful. And to the one who rejects Jesus, they remain in their own wickedness and under the condemnation of their own sin. But to the one who has been made clean by the blood of Jesus, the cross is beautiful and glorious. Because it is the testimony that we could not save ourselves. Jesus died for us. That wicked, vile sinners like me and like you could be made holy and righteous before a perfect God. What do we do with King Jesus? What do we do with the testimony of the gospel? We come to Jesus. We bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We believe in faith. And in doing so, we are saved of our wicked and vile sin. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.